Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Klobis, your host for the channel. Today I'm talking with Alexander S. Dawson about his history of peyote in both Mexico and the United States, entitled The Peyote Effect, From the Inquisition to the War on Drugs. Alec, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. It's good to have you on. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. Well, um, I am a historian by training. Uh, I teach history at the University of Albany in uh, New York, at the State University of New York. I've uh, I've sort of been at this gig for some time now, and uh, mostly I write about Mexico. I've written I I've written in the past about 20th century Mexico. I've written about the relationship between indigenous peoples and the government and the state in 20th century Mexico. I've also written some stuff about globalization in Mexico. Um, this really, though, is the first time that I've sort of expanded beyond the 20th century with my work. It's also a very interesting book in that you expand beyond Mexico to include the United States. And that's one of the things I thought was so fascinating about it, how in on one level, it's a borderland study and, and it shows the both the idea of the common you know experience with peyote, but also how it was different between the United States and Mexico. What led you to uh, undertake uh, both this book and that approach in particular, as opposed to just say a Mexico centric study? Well, it's kind of a funny story, um, and it's a bit of a personal story. I, I originally, uh, after I finished my first book, um, which was on this phenomena that people call indigenismo in Mexico, in that book I'd written a, a chapter about indigenous boarding schools in Mexico. These schools that were created in the in the in the mid twentieth century, that were kind of similar to institutions that existed in the U.S. and that existed in Canada, and also at the time that I had just published the book, I had just moved to Canada, which was undergoing this really significant kind of national crisis over the history of what they call residential schools in the country, over sexual abuse and other forms of abuse in those schools, and as I watched that unfold in Canada, it struck me that the the stories that people told about very similar schools in Mexico and similar schools in the U.S. and similar schools in Canada were, were very, very different. And I, I wanted to try and kind of figure out why the stories people told were so different. So I actually, I started to do research. I started to do research in Canada. I started to do research in the U.S. And and interestingly enough, it was one day, I think it was 2005 or 2006, it was a long time ago now, I was in the National Archives in the United States in, in Washington, D.C., um, downtown because the, the, the archives for the Bureau of Indian Affairs are in downtown D.C., really close to the mall. And I was reading through this stuff on the boarding schools, and I, and I came across a file that was titled Peyote in the, in the papers of, a, of, the, of the, the head of the Bureau of Indian Affairs from the 1930s from the New Deal. His name was John Collier. And I, I only started to leaf through that file because my former thesis advisor at the time was writing a book about cocaine. And I thought, oh, that's funny. Paul's writing a book about cocaine. And here's this file about peyote. And I started to read it. And in the midst of that file, I found this paper, this, this essay that had been written by 
an American anthropologist named, his name was Vincent uh, Petrullo, and he had written it in the late 1930s, and he had presented it in Mexico at this famous conference that I had previously written about. And in it, he talks about how peyote had originated in Mexico. The peyote religions had originated in Mexico, and that and that um, American Indians who were kind of refugees from the American Indian Wars had just kind of holed up in Chihuahua in the 1890s and had learned these peyote religions in, in Chihuahua and then brought them back to the United States and then sort of spread them through Indian boarding schools in Oklahoma. When I saw that particular story, I thought, I thought that is really, that is really cool because that's not just something that I could compare between the U.S. and Canada and Mexico, but that's something that actually crosses the border. It's like, it's not just that these two institutions exist, but that the peyote itself and the peyote religion seemed to cross the border. Now, now in the end, it turned out that he was totally wrong. That's not how peyotism <laughs> spread, spread in the U.S. But it was a really interesting starting point for me to think about, to try and understand how the concept, how this idea of indigenous translates across the border. Because I, I, I still think that it often means something very different in the U.S. and Canada than it does in Mexico. But I wanted to find a way to write about it. And it seemed to me that the, the most interesting way for me to write about it was to write about an actual material thing that crosses the border, but whose meanings seem to change as it crosses the border. As you described, the meanings also uh, change in many ways over time. And yet you also chart this. It, it's there's almost like this constant defaulting. And I, that, yeah. that stood out to me given how you uh, originate your, your study by talking about how the Inquisition engages with yeah. peyote. And I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit upon that. And, and what is it about peyote that makes it so uh, significant and distinct from what we might think of as uh, other drugs? Okay, so um, let me take the first question, and then I'll try and remember to come to the second question. The Inquisition, again, is this weird um, sort of a serendipitous story. I mean, one of the things that my, my practice as a historian is a lot of it is serendipity. You kind of, you get an idea, you go into an archive, you find something else and it leads you somewhere else. Well, well, I, I read an article or I read a, it was a chapter in a book published in the U.S. in the 1930s that, that mentioned when I was just starting this project that peyote had been banned by the Spanish Inquisition in 1620 and that and that over 80 trials had taken place during during the inquisitional period over the use of peyote. And I thought, I thought that is so like that is really weird. And I never worked in the colonial period. And I thought, I thought, well, I'll just go. So I went, I went to Mexico and I started working through the records of the Spanish Inquisition to sort of try and figure out why peyote had been banned. Um, and it turns out that peyote was the first um, the first drug really ever banned in the Americas. Um, and that that ban was again interesting. It was it was because the Spanish Inquisition associated it with both superstition and with heresy, and and they 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 associated with the devil. But that they they created and the thing that really fascinated me about the Inquisition was that because the Inquisition did not have authority over indigenous peoples, um, the ban was actually not about stopping stopping indigenous Mexicans from taking peyote. It was actually about making European and 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 castas or people of mixed origin. It was it was about stopping them from taking peyote. And it really the ban itself spoke to the fact that after Europeans arrived in the Americas, a lot of them were very attracted to peyote and they. They 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 use it for all sorts of things. They thought of it as a as a as a as something that could help them tell the future. They used it to find lost objects. People use it as a love potion. 
and they used it as a truth serum. They used it in all these kinds of ways. They used it for for dealing with what were called, you know, sicknesses of the head. Anyways, it really it really upset the Spanish Inquisition, and that's why this ban came about. And so as I'm reading that, I'm, I'm thinking that the weird thing is, is that in the 21st century, we also live in this in this context in which, and now it's the regimes are a little bit different, but where where the Mexican government and the American government both include peyote as dangerous drugs. It's a Schedule One drug in the United States, and therefore any virtually anybody is cannot take it. It's illegal, except in both Mexico and the United States, there are these exemptions for indigenous people. So if you are, for instance, in the United States, if you are one quarter Indian by blood and you're a member of the Native American church, you can legally consume, possess, um, uh, and, 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 and carry peyote across state lines in the country. Now, it just struck me like that particular juxtaposition, the fact that we have this one particular inquisitional ban that it, that has a different sort of set of explanations than the ban that we have today, but that the two seem shockingly similar. That was the thing that started to animate the book itself. Like, why is it that the ban that the Spanish Inquisition undertook looks so similar to the ban that we have today? And 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 that's that sort of troubled the entire writing of the book. The second question uh, about why is how is peyote different from other substances? Well, one is. I mean, even though it's a Schedule One drug in the United States, and it's a it's a banned narcotic in in Mexico. First of all, it's not a narcotic, and it doesn't really meet any of the criteria of dangerous drug that that usually gets de- deployed to describe it. It's it's not. I mean, it, within the sort of lexicon of, of of drug policy, it's not habit forming, which means you you can't get addicted, you don't develop tolerance. It's not like smoking or or um, or uh, you know opioids. Um, it's not a, it's not a narcotic. It's not what they would call in Mexico and a stupefacante. Like it does, it's not a stupefying drug. Um, it does produce, um, uh, these kinds of neurological phenomena. It, it also produces biological phenomena. It, it causes nausea. It can make you throw up in, in Mexico as a medicine. Historically, it was often used as a purgative, which means it was something that people would take in order to throw up if they, if they had some forms of, uh, you know, uh, uh, Food poisoning and other thing that that necessitated throwing up. It it's slightly antibiotic, so used as an ointment. It can it can treat it can treat uh, wounds, various various forms of of wounds. Um, but it causes um, it, it. By the way, it, it it also speeds up the heart rate. So so uh, at various times, people have tried to use it as a drug to deal with uh, low low blood pressure. Um, but it causes um, it causes something that we call we. Uh, uh, from a from a scientific standpoint in the 21st century, it causes hallucinations. Now, those hallucinations are, are not drunkenness in the way that it doesn't cause uh, sloppiness or uh, clumsiness or a lack of control over your 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 bodily extremities in the way that 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 that, for instance, intoxication uh, under alcohol does. But it does produce these mental phenomena that. Going back to the going back to the colonial period, were thought to be uh, the work of the devil or or superstition or or, or religiously dangerous, and into the 21st century, um, modern states um, are very uneasy with populations endeavoring to hallucinate. Um, that's 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 what I would. Uh, that's what I. I mean, I don't know. Does that answer your question? Sort of. It, a little bit? it, it does. Uh, it does. And it also, I, I think, the way you described it uh, highlights this interesting point that you make, which is you you've uh, referenced 
how sort of the, the, the linearity of it, how it was banned in the Inquisition is banned today. And yet, as you explain in your book, it wasn't linear. That you yeah. uh, that the Inquisition ends uh, with with Mexico's independence in in the eighteen twenties, and how there's this period where you're seeing with the rise of investigative science, the exploration of of various you know uh, natural substances, and, and and in a scientific way, that there's this period of time at which what peyote is, how peyote is used, is in flux. Totally, you know, and 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 I will say. I mean, interestingly enough, um, if, if I even take you back to the Inquisition, I mean, the Inquisition bans it in 1620. The, the, the Spanish state, in one form or another, had been in Mexico for a century at that point, right? So it took, and they'd known about they'd known about peyote for about 80 years at the point where they banned it, right? So, so it's not like the, the, the Spain arrives in the Americas and they immediately they they immediately ban peyote. They arrived in the Americas and they were like. Whoa! What is all this stuff we're encountering? What is this tobacco stuff? What is this cacao stuff? What is this maize stuff? And some of the things that they encounter become sort of normalized and naturalized, and what you might call deracinated. Right? They become commodities or things or substances. And some of the th- like tobacco, for instance, and some of the things that they encounter, they 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 get racialized in a kind of way that over time leads to their ban. And so, so it, it does like, there is this period that happens in the very early colonial period, but like, like you say, I mean, my book is really mostly about what I kind of consider the rediscovery of peyote in the early 20th century, um, in part because of the collapse of the, the infrastructures of the Spanish colonial state, the inquisition gets kicked out of the country in 1820 or, or leaves of its own accord, depending on who you ask. <laughs> and, um, and also at the same time, the, the weirdly enough, I mean, for me, the discovery of peyote mostly when it sort of takes place amongst those called men of authority, like scientists, doctors, you know, government officials, teachers, religious figures. It it takes place more in the United States and in Germany, in part because of the highly developed kind of uh, chemistry and pharmaceutical industry in Germany, and then and then in England as well, which which had a, its own kind of trajectory. So it actually takes place more in the U.S., Britain, and Germany, and only late only later does it take place in Mexico. And it it weirdly, though the peyote consumed in Germany and England, and to a certain extent in the U.S., actually comes from Mexico. Um, Mexican scientists themselves couldn't identify peyote in the late 19th century and really only get interested in it when they're reading these journals like the British Medical Journal and other things happening elsewhere, where these scientists and and, and apothecaries elsewhere are talking about peyote as a potential medicine. And they're like, whoa, wait a minute, you know, <laughs> that's ours, right? We need to figure out what's going on there. And that's when that's when the 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 Mexicans really start to get interested in and start their own studies. And 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 initially as in the U.S., as in Germany, as in as in Britain, initially want to see if this little cactus that has these alkaloids in it um, might be a medicine, might be a medicine that could be monetized as a as a as a pharmaceutical product in in an industrial pharmaceutical setting. You described that not just that that process of exploration, but also what comes out of it, which is mescaline. How yeah. do they end up getting to mescaline, and and what do they see as as mescaline's purpose? So I I, I need to reiterate here that I'm a historian by trade, <laughs> and, <laughs> and 
and and that stuff that's I mean I read a lot about it but I I can't say that I can't say that I really quite understand how you extract an alkaloid from a cactus but 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 suffice it to say that there are there are about 40 different alkaloids in in a in a proper peyote cactus I mean it is a very alkaloidally rich um uh, plant and those alkaloids, some of them are sort of they don't have any of, Im, impact on human beings. And some of those um, some of those alkaloids have significant impacts on human beings. And so in the in the eighteen uh, in the eighteen nineties, mostly in the U.S. and in Germany, um, uh, starting with Louis Lewin in in Germany and starting with uh, American pharmaceutical uh, uh, companies in the United States, there was a great and and particularly under the sort of tutelage of this guy James Mooney, who was actually an ethnologist. They they tried the U.S. government as well as these uh, researchers in Germany tried using various chemical uh, chemistry processes, which I involve, which I think involved drying things and boiling things and burning things and and extracting things, and they they tried to identify the act of the 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 most important alkaloids in peyote and um that the as a as a kind of indicator of where sort of chemistry was in the late 19th century the best chemistry particularly in this kind of pharmaceutical uh work uh was really in germany it was in and around berlin it was people like louis lewin um it was people like hefter this other german chemist um they had better techniques they had better equipment they had better labs than anywhere else in the world that is one of the instances one of the reasons why cocaine when it gets um you know uh developed out of coca it, it happens in germany it doesn't happen it doesn't happen anywhere else and so by the by the early 1890s uh german chemists um uh, had identified four different alkaloids, uh, and uh, they named them different things. They tried them out in terms of experiments that they did, and they ultimately identified mescaline as an alkaloid that was that you could extract from peyote as what they thought of as the most active one. That was really the one that produced hallucinations. And then they developed a technique for extracting mescaline and, and started to try and, and market mescaline. It would it would be it would it would be until 1919. It was Ernst Spath who actually developed synthesized mescaline. But that that's the sort of very interesting story about early early uh, early pharmacological work, early 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 chemistry. And again, um, it was the Americans tried to do it. They they just didn't have the technique. The Germans had the technique and managed to do it. The Mexicans um, they 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 were even their technique was even. Uh, less advanced than the Americans, and so the Mexicans, instead of even trying to extract alkaloids from from the peyote cactus, simply tried to create a kind of solution that was a mix of the alkaloids from the peyote cactus, because um, they they couldn't they couldn't separate the the alkaloids at all. Germany definitely was at the forefront of a lot of chemical uh, investigation of the chemical industry in, in late 19th century. But I'm also wondering the, the degree to which Ger uh, German scientists were, re were readier to explore uh, peyote because they didn't have that rat that racinated context you described of, of, of viewing peyote as something that is associated with the indigenous population. For them, it was just another plant. I I think that's right. I mean, I think that it, you you would add the English to that as well. That their particular their their particular ability to sort of think of it simply as a thing or a substance that they were consuming that was sort of decontextualized. Um, though Lewis Lewin ultimately gets very very interested in the ethnic origins of 
of these of these products. I mean, and he writes this very interesting book in the 1920s called Fantastica, um, which is kind of a, a Bible for some of the for some later kind of uh, drug enthusiasts about and he very much he, he comes around to thinking that these these natural substances need to be sort of understood in the context of their of their original setting but certainly at this point you're totally right um i think the u.s is a more well no it's not i think you're right about the u.s i mean i think that there was there were efforts in the u.s to to think of this merely as something that was disconnected um but but a lot of the work, especially that came out of James Mooney and, and, and some of the experiments, sort of thought of one of the virtues of peyote and one of the virtues of mescaline is its sort of rootedness in a kind of romantic indigenous essence. Whereas in Mexico, it was the exact opposite. It seemed it, it was it seemed associated with dirt and, and backwardness and something. And again, this is one of the one of the really interesting differences between the United States and, and Mexico. I think that. For those great kind of intellectuals and scientists and 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 progressives of the late 19th century in the U.S., um, indigenous sort of essences or indigenous pasts were often these kinds of romantic things that they could embrace as a kind of as a kind of turning away from the alienation of modern industrial society, but but that they could do it within the within a kind of luxurious space in which the U.S. really was. Like becoming the most modern country on earth, and the, and whiteness in the U.S. was never really at risk, right? I mean, I mean, uh, you know, especially with the sort of immigration waves of the late 19th century, um, it, it, there was never any kind of fear amongst these people that whiteness would be overwhelmed by the country's indigenous peoples or the indigenous past. Whereas, I think in in Mexico in the 19th and and especially after the revolution. A lot of a lot of the people doing this kind of work, um, they feared the nation being swamped by its indigenous uh, essence or its indigenous populations, in part because of, of Mexico's own complicated racial history. And yet, even though the Americans don't generally have that fear of being swamped, peyote is nonetheless banned in 1917. I was wondering if you could explain how that ban occurred and, and what it revealed about the relationship with Native Americans and how Native Americans responded to that ban. Okay, so I, I want to make that I, I want to make the point that actually that those bans that you saw in 1917 were at the state level. And this is what I, I feel like one of the things that I've become in uh in 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 writing this book is 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 uh is is enough of an expert to teach law school on, on <laughs> powers in the united states and, and judicial decisions so so in the u.s and this is very complicated that you have you have criminal level uh you have you have criminal law at the state level you have criminal law at the federal level but you also have this jurisdictional question in that and that indian reservations in the united states um uh, are federal jurisdiction even when they're in states, right? So state law, state law in the United States does not extend to Indian res- reservations. Indian reservations are under under the authority under the authority of the Bureau of Indian Affairs. So it, starting in 1970, there, there were there were there was a lot of pressure through the early early decades up up to about 1917, um, both at the state and federal level, at states, at in many states and federal level, that. Um, to, to pass a peyote ban, right? And the first state bans get passed in, in 1917, as several states passed state laws prohibiting peyote in 1917, but that did not affect 
the uh, the the use of peyote on Indian reservations. Now, there was a lot of pressure, and there was an effort to pass a federal ban in in 1918. Um, the the effort passed in the House of Representatives, but failed in the Senate. So, so federally, there was no uh, law against peyote in the United States until 1966. Um, however, in that period between 1918 and about 1933, when when the New Deal government really came to power and John Collier became the, the head of the Bureau of Indian Affairs, there were a lot of efforts undertaken to nonetheless um, impede uh, uh, the the consumption of peyote on 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 Indian reservations in the country. The Bureau of Indian Affairs uh, really acted in concert with missionary groups to try and, in spite of the fact that it was perfectly legal, to try and to try and eliminate peyote from Indian reservations. But interestingly, so so it, it wasn't every state that passed a ban. But in those states that passed a ban, it created a context in which, again, this sort of the the, the mantra of the Inquisition coming back in, and and is this one is the most sort of clearly analogous to the Inquisition in that in that in that peyote was technically illegal in those states, but because state law didn't extend to the Indian reservations, um, it was effectively legal um, on Indian reservations, and you thus creating this kind of racialized distinction of who could and who could not. And that that's particularly meaningful, say, for instance, in the case of Oklahoma, where there was this peyote church. Um, I'm going to say I'm going to say it was in Tulsa. I'm gonna, I'm, I'm, my memory is suddenly very very. Um, his name was the, the head of that church was was John Jameson, and uh, and he had this peyote church called the Church of the Firstborn in Tulsa, uh, in the late teens and early twenties. He had grown up lauded. He was African American. He'd grown up on the reservation. He'd moved to Tulsa. He had tried to re reimplement this peyote church in Tulsa, but effectively because of harassment in Tulsa. Uh, the church kind of the, the church ultimately collapsed, whereas just on on on, on neighboring reservations, it uh, it could be pursued without interference from state and local officials. It was interesting how the the church itself. You, you refer to the you know, it's actually called the Native American uh, Church of Oklahoma. It, it, it's yeah. interesting how as I'm reading these chapters, it, it, you have these people who are turning to it as a Native American identifier. It's, yeah. it, 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 it's it's a it's a way of, of having that association and how in many ways you have these you know, people who are Native Americans who uh, seem to be embracing peyote at a time where there's this you know pressure upon them to assimilate as a way of maintaining their identity as, as Native Americans. Yeah, no, I think that's really I think that's really important. And um, it's one of the things that I found most fascinating in the book is the way in which that history unfolds because for the for the most part um peyotism is not practiced in the continental united states before the 1890s and it it interestingly it spreads through the indian boarding schools um so to become a kind of a, a kind of phenomena with a with an almost national profile but yeah very much it's it's part of a kind of a, a 20th century evangelical religious movement that identifies peyote with indigeneity and this sort of as this very very powerful sig signifier of, of group identity yeah no i think that's a really important story you also describe how at 
uh, Native Americans are also using it as medicine. So it's not just a, a, a substance with religious significance, but it, for them, it is part of uh, longstanding practices and, and that they are continuing to practice and, and, and are viewing peyote in that way. So, yeah, I mean, I, I would agree. I would agree with that. I mean, I, I think that the, the word medicine here is, I mean, peyote is often referred to as the medicine, um, even when used in sort of ritual, ritual uh, settings. Um, so I think that in, in some sense, yes, no, you're right, that it, it, does, it get, does get used for medicinal purposes and it does get applied in certain instances. And I mean, there are, there's, I mean, again, there's a, a an interesting argument that that was made at various points about about what actually the potentially medicinal uh, uh, purposes of peyote are, and I think that I think that there there is some evidence, like I, with the antibiotic quality of it, with the with the way in which it can affect your heart rate, with um, with the uh, uh, with the purgative quality for it, especially if you've if you've been eating bad food, um, but also very much I, I think that. Um, both within uh, Mexican communities and within the United States, uh, the, there's, a, there's a much larger way in which it's embedded in ritual life that, uh, that's, that makes it a social medicine, a medicine that is about sort of the building of community and communal healing and, and, and group identity, especially in a, in a, in a setting where it, can, it is positioned as um, sort of anti-colonial or um, sort of uh, an answer to the depredations of, of settler colonialism. And yet that, that sometimes is offset. And what I'm thinking of here, it's your description in chapter six, where you're talking about how uh, the Navajo are dealing with it in the 1930s. And, yeah. and you make this point about how it was actually a fairly recent uh, introduction into their culture. And it's this interesting description of how it, it, it's something that they're embracing as a medicine. And yet at the same time, you have this group within the Navajo community. Uh, the Diné community, who are basically saying, you know, we need to stamp it out. It's it's, it's almost as if they're they're they're, they're having this warring identity, this 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 debate in the using peyote as a symbol of do they in effect, uh, you know, try to embrace you know contemporary broader American culture or do they embrace this concept of identity? Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. I I think that's true. I mean, I would I would. Um... I mean, I like that. I think that that chapter begins with a discussion of this letter written by a Goshu, uh, uh chief to the to John Collier in 1937, right? Where he's like, "This is so. This is this is." Uh, he's saying, "This is uh, this is not this is not part of our culture. This is not part of our custom. That people are taking it and they're making themselves sick and they're addicted. And you have to stop this." And then John Collier writes back and says, uh, "No." Um, <laughs> <laughs> But in part, it's because there's this long history of these uh, that I find completely fascinating of people responding to the to upticks in, in in interest in peyote by describing it as a dangerous drug, and that it's saying that that it, that, that actually uh, saying that people are are. are dying as a result of taking it now there's there's no evidence that this is actually true there there's likely the case that sometimes people who are very very sick and who are on their deathbeds would take peyote in a last ditch effort to help themselves and when they perished people would put two together and say that the peyote had killed them which is simply not true um and there's also no no real evidence that of, of of peyote being associated with these forms of drunkenness and debauchery that that many claim but but certainly what it did represent what it, what it what it 
fundamentally represented as an evangelical religion, mostly of young men, some of some of whom were outsiders to the communities in which they were introducing it, um, and most of whom were kind of were were alienated from the power structures in those communities. It represented a threat to existing power structures, right? Mm-hmm. And that idea of this kind of evangelical re- religion that is challenging tradition and that is challenging the power structures, and like that, that long history of that across, uh, uh, you know, across, you know, the history of, of, of settler colonial societies. Now, it's, it's inverted here in that the people who are disrupting the power structures are actually calling for a, a sort of re- um, energized embrace of their indigenous identity and a kind of oppositional indigenous identity. It's, it's, it's unlike sort of tradition or, you know, earlier missionary movements, but nonetheless, it is something that is challenging those people who are in a position of authority. So, so when you like, for instance, when you think about the Navajo, it being introduced on Navajo, there was literally a kind of like a civil war on the Navajo reservation in the 1930s between these young peyote, you know, evangelists and this group that was called the whiskey faction. And they were called the whiskey faction because they control the distribution of whiskey on the reservation. And that's how they, that's how they kept themselves in power. That's how they, that's how they earned their keep. And, um, a lot of the peyote sort of evangelists were also anti-alcohol evangelists. They would claim that you, that when you become a member of a peyote group, you have to give up alcohol. And that, and that in fact, more than that, that the, that the, that participating in, in, in one of these peyote churches helped people give up alcohol. Now, there's a lot of testimony that that, in fact, is probably true, that that that, that people turned to the Native American church and other peyote churches um, in, in something that was a, both a, a desire to kind of abstain from alcohol, but also a desire to embrace a ritual that helped them abstain from alcohol. But that that is that becomes a source of real conflict on the Navajo reservation, which ultimately results. Um, I mean, the, the 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 Navajo tribal authorities try and get the Bureau of Indian Affairs involved. The Bureau of Indian Affairs says this is a, this is a, this issue of, of of religious self determination. The peyotists have a right to do what they're doing, and so the Navajo tribal council. Uh, after the 1940 elections, institutes a ban on peyote on the reservation, and that ban lasts till I think 1965. I mean, the ban maybe it's maybe 62, 63 that it gets lifted, but but that that kind of internal politics and conflict over over the sort of spread of peyotism on the American reservation. I mean, I, I think that's an important story in part because that's not usually the story that people tell about the Native American church and peyotism. They often tell it as if it's this ancient tradition that is broadly embraced by everyone and that is fundamentally and integrally a part of quote unquote indigenous culture and tradition. And it's just, it's, it's, um, it's more complicated than that. And I think that the complicated story is really an important one. You, Further complicate the story when you get to the 1950s because you situate peyoteism and, and, and mescaline in this turn in the 1950s towards hallucinogens. Yeah. I was wondering if you could explain how the growing scientific investigation of hallucinogens in the 1950s, which we commonly associate with LSD, uh, yeah. you know, shifted the debate or changed the debate in various ways. So, um, you know, as a <laughs> as somebody who spent the last ten years working on peyote, I want to almost say, no, it started with mescaline. <laughs> um, um, you know, the word psychedelic gets invented by uh, uh, a psychiatrist who's actually living in Saskatchewan, who's uh, 
God, whose name? I've just I've just suddenly forgotten. Um, the psychiatrist who who was at the Weyburn Mental Hospital, who was a friend of, uh, literally, the name has gone. This is, is what happens. Is it is it Roquette? I'm sorry. No, no, Roquette is the Mexican. Oh, sorry. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, um, it'll come it'll come back to me in a second. Um, anyways, he was he was a British psychiatrist teaching in Saskatchewan. Actually, Erica Dick wrote a wonderful book about him, and she's gonna if she listens to this, she's gonna kill me because I just lost his name. I've lost <laughs> Humphrey Osmond is his name. Um, anyways, um, he uh, he comes to Saskatchewan in part because he wants to to sort of think about new and novel medicines, and he gets recruited to Saskatchewan by the. This is a kind of Canadian story, but it, the 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 governor of Saskatchewan is this guy named Tommy Douglas, who's the head of this leftist party called the CCF that becomes Canada's NDP, and he wants to kind of put Saskatchewan on the map. So he brings Humphrey Osmond to Mexico. I mean, to to Saskatchewan, excuse me, and and. Osmond gets very interested in mescaline, um, but he's interested in it in the, in the context of psychiatric hospitals because he wants to use mescaline to treat alcoholism, right? And he has this theory that he works on, in this hospital that sort of – he then ultimately becomes a friend of uh, – God, my brain is my, – my brain is uh, Aldix Huxley – and he actually administers mescaline to Aldous Huxley, who then uh, he who writes the Doors of Perception based upon experiences with mescaline. Again, mescaline being tied to peyote. Um, it's only later that they get involved in LSD that they get really interested in LSD. And for most of them, this is also true with Timothy Leary and others. They they tend to start their their work as psychologists or as psychiatrists with uh, what we would call a less potent psychedelic, either psilocybin, which comes from psilocybin mushrooms, or mescaline, which originates in peyote. And for the most part, a lot of these early um, sort of researchers are, are thinking that these that these uh, that the use of these substances, the use of these uh, psychedelics that cause hallucinations, are useful for treating other forms of addiction, particularly alcoholism. And, and Osmond up in Saskatchewan, actually, if you look at his record, he, he will argue to the end of his days that he had a remarkable degree of success in treating alcoholism with, with, with mescaline. It later evolves into LSD. And then, of course, it be, this, the, the person who I wrote more about in this, in this book, because it's taking place in Mexico, is this guy, Salvador Roquette, who is a Mexican psychiatrist who sort of is a little bit of a latecomer because he doesn't do his first experiment with mescaline until 1957, when the people in Saskatchewan in the U.S. and elsewhere, Germany, have been doing it for some years. But, but basically, uh, he and along, of, along with all of them come to believe that that the psychosis induced by um, psychedelic drugs or whatever effect is being in, in, induced by psychedelic drugs, sometimes it, it, they, these drugs get called psychotomimetics, meaning that they, they kind of have a mimetic practice of, of, of creating a, a psychotic state, is, is, a, is, is a potentially useful therapy for, for diseases of the mind, whether it's alcoholism or, or, or um, or depression, or even schizophrenia. They they want to sort of try and use these drugs to experiment with with treating with treating sort of conditions that have heretofore been very very difficult to treat, like alcoholism, like addiction, like depression, um, like neurosis. And so they 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 just become very very interested in in this as a as a new frontier of of drug therapy. Now, 
because of uh, because mescaline and and uh, psilocybin are, are made from plants, it's very very difficult to monetize them within pharmaceutical companies. Though Sandoz, the the, the Swiss pharmaceutical company, does patent LSD. LSD is a, a much more powerful uh, hallucinogen, uh, but also in, entirely synthetic, well, almost entirely synthetic. Um, over time, the experiments, you know, tend more and more towards uh, treating these variety of ailments uh, uh, with uh, psychedelic with with LSD. Um, Cary Grant takes LSD, right? These drugs are also, by the way, interestingly enough, as sort of as a sign of the times. These drugs are also often used to try and treat to cure people of homosexuality. I mean, it's a it's it, it speaks to the it speaks to the particular mindset of the day. Something that is not that that we can situate in the 1950s and 60s, but would be completely out of place in the 2010s where we're living today. Um, the thing is, is that as these things grow more popular amongst psychologists and psychiatrists, that it also opens up a, a growing sort of enthusiasm that coincides with that amongst people who want to sort of take these drugs to, 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 you know, expand their minds, to, to think of their connections to the universe, to, to sort of engage, have religious mystical experiences, to, to sort of challenge the, the, the sort of the very nature of reality. And as that enthusiasm sort of escalates during the 1960s, in part because of really what was a very sort of dystopian kind of uh, social milieu during the 1960s, the sort of post-war conservative nuclear family, suburban, add on top of that sort of continuing entanglement of the U.S. and its imperial wars, the escalating crisis in Vietnam, all these kind of things come to a head. And the and the the, the scientific interest in thinking about treating specific illnesses um, sort of gets overwhelmed by a kind of larger, often youth culture-oriented enthusiasm for uh, for drugs, uh, for the drug experience, sometimes hedonistic, sometimes spiritual, or sometimes a combination of the both. That that particular latter form uh, phenomena, in part or largely, because it is a, a lot of the people who are interested in these psychedelics, they're young, they're college educated, they're white, they're middle class. Um, their parents just get really freaked out. And um, I, again, freaked out being a total. <laughs> um, the, uh, the, that produces a kind of a moment of crisis where they all get banned in, in 1966. It's LSD, it's psilocybin, it's, it's, it's mess, it's peyote. Actually mescaline doesn't get outlawed for a couple of years until the early 1970s. But, um, but the sort of the prohibition, that's the moment in the United States when peyote, which had been legal up until the 1960s, federally, suddenly the pressure is to, is to make it illegal. It's when middle-class, white, college-educated kids are, are, are interested in it. That's what pushes the prohibitionists over the, over the finishing line, as you would say. And yet it's fascinating that at the same time as that's happening, you're seeing these court cases which are reaffirming the legality of its use at, in, in a religious context. And yes. Here I'm thinking of the uh, case of uh, People versus Woody, for example, where yeah. it's so as, as increasingly, no, 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 you can't use it. It's the court cases, in effect, are, are not just you know creating this 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 uh, this uh, you know sort of this environment in which you can use it, but it's also again defining it very much as a Native American thing. It's, it's almost like we're, we're reverting back to the Inquisition idea that 
it is banned except for the Native Americans. Exactly. And and that's where I like one of the things that I find really interesting about those court cases is they have the capacity to produce the reality they describe. Right. So they draw all these conclusions uh, like in Inri Woody, the, the, the California case. Um, I mean, Woody, Woody, it's California versus Woody. Um, Inri Grady is the other case decided that day um, that um, those cases. um they, they're, they're narratives, they're stories that tell, that, 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 that create meaning around practices, right? And, and they create meaning around practices based upon these forms of expert testimony. But that expert testimony is often wrong. It's ahistorical, but, but they rely on it nonetheless to produce a kind of, uh, in the case of, in the case of Woody, they, they create this idea that, that it is a bona fide practice like like peyotism can be a bona fide practice if it meets certain criteria right if you are a, if you are a member of the native american church and you have your certificate of membership if you are if it is part of an ancient tradition that you're practicing um if you are worshiping peyote as a deity right and if there are no other drugs present <laughs> and you create those kinds of things and you say okay then that's what makes it a bona fide religious practice you know and you have a, a similar dynamic taking place in Mexico as well. There, there's a formal ban in 71 uh, yeah. where Kent's uh, clinic gets raided three years later. It, yeah. it, it seems like Mexico is, is going down that same path. But again, there's this sense that indigenous people, you know, it's, it's more it's OK for them. Yeah, very much. I mean, and this is where like Mexico and the U.S., I, I don't I still don't know quite how to describe it, where Mexico and the United States are both very similar and very, very different. Mm hmm. The the Mexican state really had very thin authority on the ground in the indigenous communities where peyote was peyotism was practiced. And so were they to try and enforce a ban in those communities, they wouldn't they like the law didn't really extend because their authority didn't really extend, right? But but the, their authority could extend to the route that that particularly um, with Choles or, or or people that are now called Wiharika would travel between their communities in the Sierra Huichola and in sort of in 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 northern Alisco and Nayarit up to the desert where the peyote grew, which was this 400 mile long trek that they would have to take. Um, and so that's where. That's where, like these, these, you know, these these bands had these very uneven quality. They, the the bands were all about the spaces in which things took place, and the bands were also very much about the power of the state. So, for instance, the Mexican government, like, and this is one of the things that I encountered while I was doing research in Mexico. Um, people who worked for the ENI, which is the National Indigenous Institute, which is it's not called that anymore, but it was called the ENI in the 1970s. Um, they were all convinced that when when Mexico signed the Vienna Convention in, in 1972 on psychotropic drugs, which had an exemption for native youth, that the signing of that treaty exempted groups like the Wichols uh, from being prosecuted for possession and use of, of peyote. But the Mexican state... Uh, didn't communicate that as its policy to local police forces um, and local state agencies that were that were in charge with with enforcing Mexican drug laws. They didn't communicate it at all or effectively. And so, throughout the 1970s, local police in Mexico, um, uh, especially along that what was called the the, the sacred route, uh, La Ruta Sagrada, they would arrest which all pilgrims. Uh, they would never arrest them going to we. Uh, to to Wiracuta, which was where the peyote grew, 
They would always arrest them on the way back because they could they could get they could get a couple hundred pounds of peyote by arresting a group of witch or pilgrims. And they could identify them because they would be walking. They would be in ritual wear. They would ritual dress. They would be coming along routes that they always took. They would arrest them. They would confiscate a couple hundred pounds of peyote. And then they would they would check off a box saying, look, we're, we're fighting the drug war. <laughs> you know, and so like in Mexico, the, the unevenness, like, I mean, formally, yes. I mean, there there were formal laws in Mexico that suggested that the same you know, sort of legal status existed for pay, you know peoteros in Mexico as existed in the United States or for for peyote consuming peoples indigenous peoples but in practice it was this very kind of messy uh, thing where the where the, what the laws actually were and how they were to be enforced and who they extended to was never entirely clear but but interestingly enough that that was also at times the case in the US as well i mean you see that you don't see that as much with groups like the native american church but you see that with groups like the peyote way church of god and others who um Sort of op- operate in these liminal spaces where they would make a series of claims, and and state courts and federal courts would disagree with one another, and and you would have these competing federal rulings. Uh, that one said this, and and the other said that, and it was like the legal status was far from cleanly settled. I mean, I think it still is far from cleanly settled in the United States. Well, I think when you talk about people like uh, Tom Pinkson at the end of your book, where you're seeing yeah. now people who are you know. You- pretty much not Native Americans who nonetheless are embracing Native American religions. It shows how the lines are never as stark as we'd like to think they are and how we that, that crossover makes it makes can sometimes make nonsense of the efforts to say for these people it's okay under these contexts, but for the rest of for everyone else it's illegal. Yeah, no, and I mean this is this is one of the the things that I think I am I, I often take the most heat for. Um, because when I talk about people like Tom Pixon or the Peyote Way Church of God um, within sort of the, the world that I operate in, within academia, we have a we're at a moment where where anybody who can be accused of cultural appropriation um, or being a charlatan or being a fool or any kind of thing um, are are usually subject to to round condemnation. Um, they're the bad guys. They're the evil people, and we're supposed to describe them in those terms. Um, but I. I, I I, I'm not quite I'm not quite down with that. I think it's a it's I want to tell a different kind of slightly more complicated story, a slight, in part because one of the things that always strikes me is the way in which um, uh, the way in which we as a society um, are often completely at ease when an indigenous person sort of adopts the trapping of whiteness. And in fact, there's a kind of Trump triumphalist narrative that that the Somebody has moved from the particular to the universal. That they've that they're educated. That they're a professor. That they're a lawyer. They're a doctor. They're a Supreme Court justice. Well, not a Supreme Court justice, not yet. But <laughs> but 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 that kind of that that kind of that kind of um, shape shifting or double agenting is 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 completely legible to us and completely acceptable in society at large. And yet we we as a society are, are unable to to make sense of people who come from the universal or come from whiteness or what do you, what do you call it, the mainstream and who decide that they want to cross the other way or that they want to blur the boundaries going the other way. And so we often just sort of we, we, we respond to that with revulsion. We get like you fraud, you cheater, you liar. And that, now nowadays you appropriator. Um, and Though I think that there are really instances of people who 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 deserve that accusation, right? 
um, people who monetize indigenous cultures for their own benefit without having any connection to them whatsoever. I think people like Tom Pixon and the Peyote Way people and a lot of the people who I looked at in this in this book, they're just they're more complicated than that. And, and they're they're worth uh, maybe not, you know, you know, saying that, well, they're the they're the answer to our, all of our problems. But they're they're worth thinking about because um, their goal actually is to destabilize some of the things that we think of as reality. And you know what? I mean, in this day and age. I'm not so sure that the people who want to destabilize reality are not wrong. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, we live in pretty awful times and a lot of the kind of values that a lot of the values that we think of as normal, like for instance, extractives, like the idea that, I mean, I grew up in this region in, in Canada called Alberta where the oil industry is the industry. And you know, the, there's a logic there that, that we have to be able to dig stuff out of the ground and send it abroad and that that's just what we do and and that and that we are here to exploit the earth and in spite of all the evidence we have of 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 what's happening to this planet as a result of that attitude towards the earth we continue our albertans continue i'm not really an alberta anymore but albertans continue to do it and just this past week there was a huge conflict in british columbia over pipeline building over traditional indigenous lands where the rcmp with machine guns broke down a wooden fence to, to stop protesters who were trying to to get them to build that pipeline and that pipeline was again this kind of environmental concern people are like no you're you got it we've got to stop engaging in this rapacious attitudes towards the planet and so i see in people like tom pinkson and i see in people like the Peyote way. And I see in some of these people who want to cross over, I see that what one of the things that they're trying to say is that they're not comfortable living in the world as we have constituted it. And they're, see, they're searching a different reality. They're searching a different kind of consciousness. And for them, the most legible way of making that consciousness uh makes sense is to kind of resort to certain tropes of indigeneity, which are themselves an invention of the West, right? The mm -hmm. e ecological, the ecological, uh, what we used to call the ecological Indian, right? Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, I think that there's something, there's something more interesting there than, than just this talk of charlatans and frauds and appropriators offers us. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? So um, it's a project that is um, kind of completely unrelated. Well, not really completely unrelated, but it's a project. Um, well, can I tell a little story and then, and then the project makes a little sense? Please do. I was, I was in Mexico City um, in, I think it was 2014. It might have been 2013. The, the dates sometimes blur together. I was actually finishing the, 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 the final bits of research on the peyote book. And... Um, I noticed that the, the government of Mexico City had just installed a series of bike lanes along this major route that runs through Mexico City called the Paseo de la Reforma. And the thing that was really notable about those about those new bike lanes that it, that, it, that it had built was that they had been installed along a curb lane that had traditionally been uh, – the the place where these small sort of popular buses called peceros used to ride these peceros these were these little kind of vans they were often a little bit rickety but they were really cheap and they were the way in which poor people got around the city especially through the core of the city which the 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 Paseo de la Reforma runs through the core of the city and so the 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 city government had built these bike lanes had gotten rid of the peceros and in their place they had created these much more expensive buses these buses that cost two and three times what a pecero would cost and and really in some ways driven working people out of what was a main thoroughfare in the city 
And those bike lanes, as far as I could tell at that time, were mostly being used by sort of wealthy businessmen on their way to their lunch assignations and uh, tourists, foreign tourists who had rented bicycles, rented bicycles again in a way that that local uh, poor people in Mexico kind of they can't afford to participate in these bike share programs because you need a credit card and you need. And so I started thinking about what bike lanes do to a city and, and what bike lanes mean in the 21st century. And and how do how 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 does the how does the way that bike lanes are being built in our cities tell us a story about the changing demographics of our city, but particularly about class and privilege and neoliberal cities and the way in which poor people more and more in these big cities like Mexico City, but also like New York, like San Francisco, like Vancouver, where I lived for many years, how poor people are being sort of pushed to the margins of their cities. Um, and, and these bike lanes then become these kinds of these kinds of markers of of sort of prosperous middle class athletic young men for the most part and so my, my project is, is 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 an effort to talk about bike lanes um it's not just the mexico city bike lanes it's it's bike lanes in other cities it's a it's an effort to talk about where the idea of those bike lanes come from particularly this modeling of copenhagen and and amsterdam as the sort of as the as the ideals of bike lane culture but but how these kinds of ideas that come out of amsterdam and copenhagen are reshaping or are part of the reshaping of these large metropolises mostly in the new world so that's that's what i'm thinking about for my next project that sounds like a fascinating project yeah no i'm excited about it i'm a little terrified as well but I'm excited. <laughs> it's caused well, me to, i'm sorry go ahead it's caused me to ride a lot more bike lanes in the last in the last year but uh, that's good right well i hope that when you finish the book we can have you back on the new books network to uh, talk about it well i'd be delighted thank you so much and, and thank you for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us i hope you have a wonderful day it's been my pleasure thank you 